The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and joining me, of course, a man, when asked if he could take a drink and let people smell him, well, he was kind enough to say, you can smell me without the drink. He is the captain. Hennigan's No Tell, No Smell. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today we are featuring Snozberry, and no, we are not sitting in the garage licking the wallpaper because we got bottles from Green Man Brewery. Speak for yourself. Snozberry is an American sour ale, 5.5% ABV, and a solid four bottle caps. And before we dive back into this week's case, let's give some thanks to our good friends. First up, we have Leslie in West Fargo, North Dakota. And a big we like your jib to Dan from Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. And speaking of dudes that are named Dan up north, we have our buddy Dan the Drummer. Yeah, our buddy Dan the Drummer from Match City. If you're looking to check out a cool party band, check out the band Match City. Next up, we have a big shout out to Mike who says we are the best. We are not the best, but we are pretty damn good there, Mike. Mike is in parts unknown. We're the best at being the worst. Mike is in parts unknown where there is no quarantine because, as some of you may know, mm-hmm. the captain and I were way ahead of everything, and we installed a giant bubble over parts unknown way back in September of last year. Well, and that part of the city is now dedicated to Todd Lubitsch. Next up, we have Kevin in Ramsey, United Kingdom. We also have Heather in Flowery, Branch, Georgia, and last but certainly not least, we have Luna, the Fluffy Husky, in Seattle, Washington. So cheers to everyone out there who have supported the garage over the years. Without you, this would not be possible. For more Garage Days, check out the free Stitcher app to access the full Garage Archive. What is the colonel trying to say? He's trying to say download the Stitcher app for free, and you can listen to all of our episodes for free. And that is enough 
of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. At the time of Jason's death, Sarah was eight and Jack was only 10 years old. Now, Molly was the only mother in their lives since the death of their biological mom. Sarah was three months old and Jack was two when their bio mom passed away. Now, the kids remained with Molly while the courts figured out who should get them. Molly initiated custody proceedings to formally adopt both children, but Jason's will made for other arrangements, handing legal guardianship over to his sister, Tracy Lynch and her husband, David. Notably, Jason's will was written prior to his marriage to Molly, but you have the will and the facts are the kids were born in Ireland and were not us citizens. And Molly was not their biological mother. In response to the custody dispute, custody hearings were held. The Corbett side of the family started a Facebook page called Bring Jack and Sarah Home to call attention to what they considered an injustice. The kids stayed with Molly despite their father having mysteriously been killed in her presence. There were allegations that Jason had not desired that his wife adopt his children that looked to be accurate. According to the reports anyway, court papers revealed that Corbett never consented for his second wife, Molly, to formally adopt the children. During the custody proceedings, the court heard that in the autumn of 2014, Molly spoke to her attorney about her rights to the children, possibly in the case of a divorce. Looks like Molly wanted the kids, and for some reason, Jason did not want her to adopt them. Eventually, Sarah and Jack were returned to Ireland in the custody of David and Tracy Lynch. After the kids were sent away, Molly moved back in with her parents in Knoxville. She enrolled in interior design classes and got back into swimming. However, on January 4th of 2016, It was announced that a grand jury had indicted Molly and her father, Tom Martins, on charges of second-degree murder and voluntary manslaughter. Tom was allowed to turn himself in, but Molly was arrested and cuffed. The two were released on $200,000 bond and ordered to surrender their passports and not have any contact with Jason's family. They both entered not guilty pleas. At the end of January 2016, Molly was required to appear in court again to respond to a summons requiring her to explain why she had removed personal items from the couple's home in violation of a 
consent order. Per that order, Molly was not to sell or remove any, quote, tangible personal property, end quote. The court issued a temporary restraining order preventing Molly from continuing to remove property while they sorted out what was going on. What had Molly removed from the house? Well, according to court documents, everything except Jason's clothing and the kids' stuff and items brought over by Jason from Ireland. In the course of this inquiry, it was revealed that in April of 2011, Jason Corbett transferred a very large sum of money, reports vary, somewhere between $50,000 and maybe upwards of Mm $80,000 to Molly's parents. This was supposedly for wedding expenses. The court ruled that Molly had to return all of the items that she took because there was a, quote, high probability that the money transferred from Jason to the Martins was the source of the funds that paid for the items that she eventually took. The funds from a life insurance policy on Jason, which amounted to $600,000, as well as money from the sale of Jason's car, were to be held in escrow pending probate proceedings and what is going to be a criminal trial. But before we get into the criminal trial, David Lynch, brother-in-law of Jason and executor of his will, filed a wrongful death suit alleging that Molly and her father intentionally, willfully, and maliciously assaulted Jason on August 2nd, 2015. And so, but just to be clear, this insurance money Molly would receive? Yes, she is to, that's, that's my understanding. And she sold his car. So this has to sit in escrow until they determine where this money should go. Where's the appropriate place for it to go? Because if she killed him, she doesn't get the insurance money. Right. So we know that she wanted custody of the children. But if this is premeditation, there's not guarantee that you're going to get custody of the children. But it's guaranteed that you're going to receive this large sum of money. Mm $600,000. And whatever assets he might have at the time, the house, cars, things like Mm -hmm. that. But part of this wrongful death suit also includes Sharon. Molly's mother and Tom's wife who never faced any criminal charges in this case, but the wrongful death suit claims that she assisted, aided and abetted in the defendants in killing of Jason Corbett and in the concealment and destruction of evidence related to Jason's death. Finally, we have the criminal trial, which was set for July, 2017. And I want to see, the trial evidence because we are only getting such a small piece of the pie to this point from both law enforcement and the two suspects. And if the authorities have more, well, then it's going to be at the trial when we learn what real evidence they have. Right. At the commencement of the trial, the prosecution informed the court that it was dropping the voluntary manslaughter charge and intended to pursue only the second degree murder charge which required a showing that the crime was committed with malice. The prosecutors appeared confident that they could make the more serious charges stick. Our summation of the trial comes mainly from the extensive coverage in the West Salem Journal. During opening arguments, 
the assistant district attorney told the jury six foot tall, 260 pound Jason Corbett was beaten to death in a brutal bludgeoning attack by his wife and her father and that the killing was deliberate and possibly motivated by money. Molly and her father were represented by two separate attorneys working in tandem. Tom's attorney spoke first. He said that Tom had acted in defense of his daughter after seeing her, you know, she's about half Jason's size, being violently choked and threatened by her husband. Mm -hmm. Telling the jury, quote, he was not only defending his daughter, he was defending himself. Next, Molly's attorney told the jury that the investigators missed several pieces of evidence that would show that Molly and Tom were telling the truth. He said that they never collected or tested the long blonde hair that was found in Jason's hand. If they had, it would have shown that he was violently gripping her. Molly had a bloody mark on her neck that was not tested either. This must be that little red dot. Further, blood on the bottoms of Jason's feet indicated that he continued to move around even after the blows began, countering the prosecution's suggestion that Jason had been waylaid Y-prone. The picture being painted by the prosecution, as the defense says, was not accurate. Right. Well, what the what they're trying to say is, well, one of the theories is by investigators is, that she actually hit Jason in his sleep, and that's why there would be a lot of blood on the pillow. Mm-hmm. Now, the pictures I have seen, I have not seen this blood-soaked pillow. I see some blood splatter on the bed and a little bit of blood splatter on the pillow. So they're saying that she went in there, either there was an argument or he was asleep, and she said, you know what, I'm going to take this concrete block and smack him on the head with it and then you get smacked with a concrete block well now fights on well we state that the defense is saying that the narrative put forth by the prosecution is just not accurate you kind of know what that's going to be what that narrative will be but let's let's hit some of the highlights real quick here one that molly and jason's marriage was in trouble with jason making plans to return to ireland without his wife He had not allowed her to adopt his children. Mm -hmm. Jason was found naked and blood spattered, but there were no evident injuries to either of the defendants. They both refused medical treatment at the scene that night. There was blood covering the walls of the master bedroom, hallway, bathroom, and both sides of the door to the room. Jason Corbett was killed by multiple blows to the head, including two devastating blows to the back of the head and at least one blow that was delivered when he was already deceased. His skull, quote, was like a hard-boiled egg that had been dropped on the counter, end quote. The murder weapons were a paving stone and a metal bat that had been wielded by both defendants, which were covered in blood, hair, and brain matter. Mm -hmm. Blood spatters indicate that Jason was subjected to a sustained series of blows with blood spray patterns indicating that he was, at one point, near the ground when his head was struck. They say, quote, that leaves us with why. Why didn't they stop? End quote. Yeah, but, okay, One, we do have Molly stating that during this struggle, her father 
goes to the ground and that Jason's on the ground and she strikes Jason before he could then strike her father. So we have that. And then this possibility at the end of the struggle, he is on the ground and possibly getting up and then he's hit again. And I also think that there could be certain things that maybe they're not being a hundred percent truthful. Oh, he started moving or who's shaking on the ground. And so we hit him again. So I, I don't think that just because there was extra hits that that is not a sign of self-defense. So we have the defense that's going to argue, look, they don't argue that Molly and Tom didn't kill Jason. Right. Rather, as you just said, self-defense. They said that Tom and, and Sharon Martins made a last-minute decision to visit their daughter and her family on that Saturday because they had not seen the kids in quite some time, in several months. Jack was at that nighttime birthday party that went super late. Remember, he's not picked up till like 11 o'clock. And that's why Tom says, hey, the bat that we brought to give to Jack, we didn't give it to him that night because he got home so late. Tom says that he was awakened by screams. Now, this is a little different than the story we heard before, but this is what we're going to hear at trial. This is when it seems to me to be the most important. And when he heard the screams, he armed himself with the bat so that he could fend off anyone attacking the family upstairs and found Jason choking Molly at that time. He says that he told him to stop, but Jason continued to choke and the fight ensued, to which Tom says he lost his glasses. And then he lost control of the bat after Jason roughly pushed him. Tom was able to regain control of the bat and he hit Jason until he released Molly. And then he says that's when he started CPR. The witness testimony phase of the trial commenced. The state's first witness was Karen Caps, the 911 operator who had taken Tom's call. She gave much of her testimony on the record, but outside the presence of the jury, because much of it was opinion and speculative. She told the court of the 911 callers surprisingly calm demeanor. She also said that she was surprised that Tom wasn't out of breath from administering CPR since this life-saving aid is very taxing. Mm -hmm. She said that the female, which we know to be Molly, in the background was yelling, her compression counts out so loudly, it was clear she was trying to be heard attempting to save the victim. The jury was permitted to hear the 911 call, but again, not much of Karen Capp's testimony because it was so much of her just opinion rather than fact. Well, what's your opinion of, of his demeanor on the 911 call? It's difficult. It's difficult to decipher. We talk about this so many times where it's like, how is someone supposed to react? You said yesterday when we were talking about it that he sounds defeated. I had not thought of it that way, and I can agree with that. He does sound very matter of fact to me. And, and in, in fact, I took... Um, well, you got to sp sprinkle something else into his character where this is not a, this is not an attack, uh, you know, where we have a, a husband finding their, their wife attacked or, or, or something like that. We have a, a former FBI agent that has probably been in more difficult situations than this having to make the call. 
Yeah, I don't know what situations he's been in. I couldn't imagine one more difficult than this beating a man to death with a bat. You're right. I I can get a get behind the he sounds defeated. Well, I just thought. mean that if you have to make this call and you're your law enforcement that you know that it's not going to do you any good to be panicking. Is, Correct. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, you're spot on there. And then the other thing you can throw into that mix not only does he sound possibly defeated, he could also sound tired. Like maybe right. that's why he comes off as sounding so calm because one, he's trying to calm himself to deliver the appropriate information. And on top of that, he's tired from this, this fight that broke out. Right. Physically exhausted. But then here, here's then if the suspicious mind where I run to is, did she want her retired FBI father there as kind of proof positive, the the uh, proof is in the pudding type statement of, well, if this man who spent so much time as an FBI agent, mm-hmm. who's still working for the government with top secret uh, clearance, mm-hmm. if he sees a situation, assesses the situation, and determines then and there that this is an act of self-defense is that going to is that going to echo throughout the whole investigation is it going to you know you know what i mean is that is that the yeah. almost like the fbi putting a stamp on this was self-defense so don't question it i think initially that's why they didn't have them come back several times when you're investigating this and you go okay well it could could be self-defense and we don't have any markings on them so let's just bring them in 24 hours later unless again investigate their persons investigate their body take more pictures do it again another 24 hours later but yeah is this could this be premeditation where she knows that that this investigation could be painted with a certain uh, rose petal glasses you know of the FBI right and then we have this is this is where we need somebody to come on the blog and educate us a bit because we talked about the, the toxicology report. We have this statement. This is from Sergeant Barry Alfin. He is one of the Davidson County EMS workers. Big shout out to the EMS workers out there. Thank you for everything. He said that he found Jason to be cold to the touch and with dried blood on his body. The cold to the touch is the thing I want some education on because one thing that we stated, right, Captain, was that the the nine one one call was a almost fifteen minutes long, and I'm imagining a few minutes took place between the end of the fight and when the call was placed. How quickly is this man going to start to feel cool to the touch? Well, he has no clothes on, so how right that's going to speed things up, and also. What is the temperature of the house? It's a cool 32 degrees. You know what I mean? Like, no, I'm serious though. It's no, like, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm just being an ass. <laughs> um, here's the, here's the gross part is, and this is a statement from his, his dong was this his testimony. No, this is the, the EMS worker says that when he placed his hands on Jason's head, you know, he's trying to move him. Mm-hmm. When he placed his hands on his head, it's his, here's a direct quote. I put my hand under the scalp. My left hand went all into the skull. Mm. And that that's just, 
affirmation of the of how badly the the wounds and, and the 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 destruction to the skull was. Now, EMS workers, remember we had at least four at the scene that we are aware of from the newspaper reports. EMS workers testified how they found the two children sleeping on the second floor and told the children to close their eyes as they carried Jason from the house. Mm. The medical examiner, Dr. Craig Nelson, testified that Jason was hit at least 12 times, like we said, but the damage was so extensive that the exact number of blows could not be determined. He said that when he took the scalp off the head for examination, chunks of skull fell out onto the examining table. He testified that Jason was hit in at least 10 different places on his body, including his torso, his hands, and his knees. Several of the wounds were, quote, complex lacerations, meaning that he was struck in the same spot more than once. Autopsy photos were shown, causing one of the jurors to throw up in a trash can. Dr. Nelson went on to say that the tox screen run on Jason showed that he had traces of trazodone in his system. This was a powerful sleep aid prescribed to Molly, on July 30th, just three days before Jason's death. Mm. Jason was not known to suffer from any sleep issues. The prosecution hinted that perhaps Molly had attempted to drug Jason and actually implied that Molly had put the trezodone into a mojito that Jason drank. A former Davidson County deputy who responded to the scene testified about his observations said that he escorted Molly to his patrol car and stayed with her. He said Molly appeared upset, testifying that, quote, she was making crying noises, but I didn't see any visible tears. Now, speaking of forensic evidence, all forensic analysts with the state crime lab served as state witnesses, and they testified that both the bat and the concrete paving brick were covered in blood, hair, and Jason Corbett's DNA was found on both of the items. This makes sense, obviously. Uh, Molly and Tom admitted hitting Jason with both of these items, although we go back to Molly's written statement, only admitted to attempting to hit Jason with it. Mm -hmm. Twelve hairs belonging to Jason Corbett were found. This was taken from the concrete paving brick. The pictures I saw, Captain, showed the brick just covered in blood and hair. Well, and like I was saying to you, I think off record was this brick is going to be, it's going to have um, some pores to it. So it's going to soak up blood differently than the bat would. Right. Now, one of the final witnesses for the prosecution was the blood spatter expert. His name is Stuart James, who was introduced as a specialist in bloodstain pattern analysis he testified that dents were visible low down on the wall of the master bedroom where Jason died. He said that these dents indicate that Jason was beaten at one point while he was close to the ground or on the ground. And a pattern of blood spatter low on the wall suggests that Jason was struck more than once while he was falling to the ground. James also testified that dried blood spatter on the inside leg area of Tom's boxer shorts and on the bottom of Molly's pajama pants suggests that the two were above and over Jason Corbett's head as he was being struck. 
James said a vacuum cleaner was sitting upright at the west wall of the master bedroom as seen in the crime scene photos, the one that I was talking about. He said there were blood spatters behind the vacuum and a pattern of blood spatter flowing from side to side on the vacuum cleaner. He says, quote, it tells me that the vacuum cleaner was on its side when the blood was deposited on the vacuum cleaner and it was long enough for it to dry. It shows an alteration in the scene prior to these photos being taken, end quote. The implication was that Molly and Tom had moved some things around in the room, possibly staging the scene prior to calling 911. And we do know some of this timeline in rather great detail. And so if they were to stage anything, the staging has to go on prior to the 911 call or during the 911 call. Again, much of that 911 call is them it's thought that they're administering CPR during that call, but they could be pretending to do so. And the reasons why I state that we, we know this, that, that that could be an option here is that we have the statements of the EMS workers and the statements of police officers that say, look, they were on 911 for 14 minutes and 27 seconds on that call. At the end of the call, we can hear EMS, the first crew of two arriving, and they are going into the master bedroom to which you can hear Tom and Molly leaving the room as the 911 operator tells them, let them do their jobs. When the police arrive within just like, it's like two minutes later, when the police arrive, they find the two of them, that being Molly and Tom on the front porch. So we have that little detail. That part of the timeline is is known to be fact. It's known to be true because we have others to tell us uh, what, what took place. Back to the blood guy. He also pointed out that impact blood spatter on part of the bed and large blood stains were on the bed skirting. He said that this evidence suggested that Jason was first struck at or near the bed. Also, Sharon Martins, Tom's wife and Molly's mother, remained in the guest bedroom in the basement despite all of this commotion and the kids seemingly remained asleep. That's a, that's kind of weird too in this. And when we go through the crime scene as well, if there's this big fight going on upstairs, Sharon didn't do anything. Yeah. This, well, yeah, she didn't call nine one one. That's what I don't like. Cause you would assume, well, my husband is in danger because Jason's a bigger man, but you don't call 911. The children don't wake up. But also, when you see a picture of this house, this is a large house. Yes. Uh, and and um, my uh, former stepsons, you could vacuum in their room and they wouldn't wake up. That might explain away why the, the kids didn't hear anything. It's not surprising if you have two or three high-interest credit cards in your wallet right now. That's common. But you can easily pay them off with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. Lightstream's credit card consolidation loans have rates from just 5.95% APR with auto pay, and there's absolutely no fees. Quickly roll balances from multiple credit cards into one single monthly loan payment. You'll get a low fixed interest rate, and free up more money in your monthly budget. 
One customer says after shopping around for a personal loan that would help me get a lower interest rate, there was no one easier to work with, plus Lightstream had the best rate by far. Apply today to get that special interest rate discount and save even more. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash TCG. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash TCG. Subject to credit approval, rate includes 0.5% auto pay discount, terms and conditions apply, and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash TCG for more information. Cheers, mates. Cheers to you. A lot going on. Cheers to me. (laughs) Cheers to we. Cheers to everybody. (laughs) All across the land. This case is really frustrating. I mean, a lot of them are. But this one, it's like, what is the truth? Because we do have things of evidence that, that suggest the story that they're telling Tom and Molly. What they're telling is not true. But... There's so much of when Tom talks that I believe what he's saying. Yeah. The, I was talking with somebody last week and they were saying, hey, I listened to your, your case last week and it was a it was a difficult one. It was a tough one. And I said, yeah, the, the easy cases don't make it on the show. Right. So now, Captain, we have the time where the defense gets to fight back, right? The prosecution has rested its case. The defense is going to fight back. For one thing... They say while the that drug prescribed to Molly was in Jason's system, they did a good job of managing to create some doubt as to whether Jason could have been self-medicating. Maybe he's dipping into her pill bottle. They produced records detailing multiple recent doctor's visits and tests. The physician's assistant who treated Jason observed signs of depression, and Jason had been treated for a thyroid condition. And notes from the from a visit just two weeks before Jason's death state that Jason said he, this is his words, Jason said, quote, recently became angry for no reason. Defense lawyers had already decided that Molly would not testify. But in what can only be described as a gamble, Tom Martins took the stand to testify in his own defense. It's likely that his lawyers were hoping that his pristine reputation as a decades-long lawman would have some sway with the jury. Well, I, and like I said, I, I just find him to be believable. I, I will not disagree with that. Uh, Tom st- said that he woke up that night because he heard thumping, loud thumping, loud footfalls, and heard screams and loud voices. There was an obvious disturbance going on above me. He says, I grabbed the bat, ran upstairs, and I heard that the noises were coming from the master bedroom. In front of me, I would say seven or eight feet in front of me, Jason had his hands around Molly's neck facing each other. He says she was a little to the right. He was a little to the left. He said at first Jason had his hands around Molly's throat, but then as you described very well earlier, now he's he's manipulated that a bit and he's trying to drag her off to which Tom says he Jason is stating I'm going to kill her 
Mm-hmm. Tom's saying, let her go. He's threatening again. Here's the thing that, that's troubling with the whole Tom portion of this. I don't know if it's his calm demeanor, his defeated demeanor, whatever we want to call it, or a combination of the both, but you're right. It, his delivery is believable. His delivery of the story, I don't want to get too much into the words because that's where I have some questions about it, but his delivery of the story feels to me like a guy, like I'm looking at a guy that's telling the truth. Well, and even if they waited a little bit because this is a, a, a big deal that just happened, your son-in-law, which you might have liked, maybe you disliked, don't know, was choking your daughter, and then you and then you have to attack him. You have to, you know, fight. You know, and like he says at one point, when you're in a fight, it might go to death, and you have to know that. Yeah. And again, I think that's more of something that's coming from law enforcement or the, his FBI background. Whether you, you might have disliked him, but you have a guy that is dead and, and by your hands, and you, you're the one that has to call 911. So I, I believe him more because they called 911. There's other things they could have done to try to cover this up if it was premeditated. Well, and he describes emotion, too, in his recanting, you know, when he's trying to t- tell us what's going on that night. You know, he says... Jason was really angry. I, Tom, was really scared. And he does go on to say that he was worried that if Jason made it to that bathroom, like you pointed out in yesterday's show, with his daughter and closed the door, there would be some real trouble, that that he wouldn't be able to gain control of the situation or even save his daughter. Right. You know, he goes on to say that uh, I hit Jason. I hit him until he goes down and I stepped away. I don't know how many times I hit him. I hit him until I thought he could not kill me as I felt both of our lives were in danger. I did the best I could. He did choke up while on the stand. Well, again, part of his story goes with what the medical examiner is telling us. He was hit multiple times. So when he, de- he, he's not giving you a number, he's not saying why well, I, I whacked him. A, he's telling you, I whacked him a few times when he was up, mm-hmm. uh, but when he was down, I hit him so many times that I knew he wouldn't be able to move under how, how hard were those hits, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And under cross-examination, the prosecutors did try to suggest that Tom and Molly faked the CPR that they were giving to Jason. A closing argument summed up both sides of the case for the jury. Prosecutors emphasized that Tom and Molly bludgeoned Jason with a metal bat and a concrete paving brick, crushing his skull and continuing to hit him after he had fallen, and then had cooked up their tale of self-defense. There were some courtroom dramatics, as described in the Winston-Salem Journal, Assistant District Attorney Alan Martin grabbed the 28-inch Louisville Slugger bat and slammed it over and over onto the prosecution's table in the courtroom with ever-increasing force, asking jurors to imagine that the table was Irish businessman's Jason Corbett's head. Every slam to the table was described as a shock to the ear. 
He also slammed the table with a concrete paving brick that, along with the bat, prosecutors say killed Corbett. Martin walked over to the defense table and pointed to Tom and Molly and said, quote, they killed him. He killed Jason with a bat and she killed him with that brick. They literally beat the skin off his skull with that bat and that brick. In their closing arguments, attorneys for the defendant said prosecutors failed to provide any compelling evidence that disproves what Tom and Molly told investigators. In other words, the prosecution had not met their burden of proving beyond a reasonable doubt that Molly and Tom were lying. I mean, again, this is why it's so tricky, because they're trying to say, you killed this man. And then their defense is, yeah, yeah, we we did. (laughs) In self-defense. We told you we did. Yeah. You know, we're not, we're not trying to cover that up. We we killed him. How many times did you hit him in the head? I don't know. I hit him until I thought he couldn't hurt me or my daughter. It, it's very tricky. They also pointed out, the defense pointed out, that Jason had been verbally and physically abusive for years, this in their closing arguments. I don't, I, I, there was tapes of this, and I don't know if you heard some of the clips, um, but I don't think this was allowed to be heard by the jury. Yeah, I uh, there were some of these tapes. This was from when she look, she's trying to gain some kind of custody of these kids. Mm-hmm. She's telling her attorneys that this man is abusive physically and verbally. So they tell her, "Why don't you record some things when he doesn't know that you're recording him?" Right. So that we can prove later, if needed, that that he is abusive, be it verbally and or physically. So yeah, there were some, there was some tapes of this and some proof of that, and we'll get into that in a bit. But the the jury deliberated for less than four hours before returning with a verdict. The state of North Carolina versus Molly Martins Corbett and versus Thomas Michael Martins, both were found guilty of second degree murder. As Molly was let out of the courtroom, she said, I'm sorry, Mom, I wish he had killed me. Later, when she was given the opportunity to speak before Judge Lee sentenced her, Molly's statements, statement was, quote, I did not murder my husband. My father did not murder my husband. The events of August 2nd happened on a regular basis. The difference is that my father was there. Yeah, and there was also, a, I believe, a statement from the son that was, which I don't think they were, again, I don't think this was um, either given to defense or defense was able to use this, but it was a statement saying that his father was verbally and physically abusive. Judge David Lee sentenced Tom and Molly to 20 to 25 years in prison each. The judge who had reviewed the psychological report on Molly submitted by the defense team stated that Molly should seek psychiatric help in prison. There was no real explanation to this part of the trial. What my guess is because she had Molly had a past history of some issues that maybe her defense team quietly submitted this to the judge for his review mm-hmm. as a possible I don't know, as a as some kind of possible defense that wasn't presented to the jury. Mm-hmm. Now, remember that wrongful death civil suit that was filed against Molly and Tom? This settlement was reached in March of 2019. It called for a payment to Sarah 
and Jack Corbett to the children in the amount of $750,000. This gets a little complicated, but I'm just going to simplify it. Molly and Tom did not admit any liability as part of the settlement. They did not have to admit liability. Right. And further, Molly was dismissed from the lawsuit after she filed documents renouncing her claim to Jason's life insurance money. So basically, the life insurance money goes to the kids. Yep. Probably the sale of the house goes to the kids. Any of the property sales goes to the kids. Yeah. So not admitting any guilt, but just reallocating all that those funds, taking herself out of it, Mm. frees her up from that. There's a whole lot of legal minutia involved in this, and you were getting into it a bit there. Um, One thing is the conflicting narratives that we saw throughout this case at trial and before and even after. Basically, you have the story told by Tom and Molly that they they did all this in self-defense, in the, the defense of his daughter and the defense of himself. You know, and that ongoing part of that narrative is the abuse and the verbal abuse that mm-hmm. took place for years, as she said. Mm-hmm. Then we have the opposite side where we have the Lynches who end up getting the kids and the ones that filed the wrongful death suit that are saying completely the the opposite, where Molly was this terrible person and unbearable and you couldn't get along with her and she's spending large sums of money and Jason was fed up and miserable right. and he was planning on leaving her and taking the kids and going back to to Ireland. We can You can really get lost in all of that crap if you want to. There's a whole lot of it to digest and a whole lot of it to go through and try to figure out who's right and who's wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't like to digest crap. Person. No, nobody yeah. does. And the thing is, I I just find I, I want to know what you're what you think of all this. Well, I find it too hard to believe that there's such a big swing in the truth. I think maybe the truth's somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. Because like you said, we have the kids that do point out they they say, man, like they they said when they were interviewed by social workers shortly after Jason's death, saying, Yeah. And they, they called Molly mom, so we'll right. just call her mom. Yeah, mom, uh, dad would yell at mom, would call her names, would, would I think they said slap her, pull her hair, stomp on her feet. Yeah, when you hear the, the tapes, I mean, he's he's blowing up over the dumbest shit. Well, we have his words at his, at his doctor visit where he's saying, I, I'm becoming angry for no reason. Mm-hmm. Then you have the reverse of that. Where after the kids move back to Ireland and they are under the watchful eye of aunt and uncle, mm-hmm. that they're saying, ah, I made up all of that abuse stuff. That stuff didn't happen. My dad was just, you know, he was miserable. He wanted to get out of there. There was no abuse. It, it seems to me the problem with both of these scenarios is these kids were young enough, 10 and 8, that they could have been coached either way for for either one of these sit downs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you can't you can't fake the tapes. No, you cannot. I mean, you can manipulate the situation, and you, and maybe you're not. Maybe there wasn't that many situations where Molly was trying to start an argument, but maybe she did. You know, I'll poke the bear, poke the bear. Oh, hit record. You know, right, right. That would be easy to do. Yeah. So, but but what what what's your take on everything? Like, do you think that? this was premeditated or well i let's let's save that portion for the conclusion because i think that's what we're going to be left with is is our opinions 
I do want to get into some of this legal minutia a bit, and I'm, I'm really summarizing this, but I think it's stuff that needs to be covered. One thing that was pointed out was that there was jury misconduct allegations. This came out just a week after the verdict from the criminal trial where Molly's attorneys and Tom's attorneys filed a motion asking the judge to set aside the jury verdict, alleging jury misconduct. The defense motion asked the judge to order a new trial or at the very least to hold an evidentiary hearing into this misconduct issue. Now, without getting into it too much, I'll give my opinion on this. There was jury misconduct at this trial. Mm-hmm. Because what we will learn is through social media posts and through interviews that the jurors did right after the trial, they were saying things that were not presented at the trial, but were presented in the media. So against the judge's orders, they were paying attention to outside sources, not just what they were hearing at the trial. Right. And so that is jury misconduct. There's no way getting around that. So they're not supposed to be talking or listening to outside sources, which we have proof that they did. And they weren't supposed to be discussing issues with one another, which they did. There's, there's proof of that as well. So it's weird because despite all this evidence that the jurors were being influenced by outside sources, the the judge did deny the defense's jury misconduct motion and stated that there would be no new trial. It's a weird situation, Captain, because I don't know how much it actually I that I actually think that it influenced their verdict. It had it happened, but right. I don't know that it actually influenced their verdict. Right, I agree with that. Because the outside sources that was obvious that they were listening to were all those news magazine shows that we talked about, 2020, 48 hours, so on and so forth. All of those outside sources seem to present a pretty 50 50 argument in my opinion right it they weren't they weren't structured like some documentaries to sway you one way or the other it was pretty straight down the middle in my opinion there were there ended up being some appeals there was a three-judge panel that heard arguments that the clients molly and tom did not receive a fair trial uh they maintained that the state did not prove beyond a reasonable doubt that molly and tom acted in self-defense or had not acted in self-defense and they pointed out the certain evidence that was left out of the trial it should have been disclosed to the jury and some of that was statements that you said like like the the recordings and the possible statements from the children that were given to social workers shortly after jason's death the appellate court found that the state prosecutors did fail to present any evidence to contradict Tom's version of events. And the fact that Tom and Molly had no visible injuries was not significant. Again, the jury misconduct was dismissed, but unfortunately, even through all of these appeals and everything that was going on with all of this legal jumble, you know, whole messed up thing, Unfortunately for Tom and Molly, the appellate court's decision was split two to one. The split decision means that the state has grounds to appeal the ruling. And on February 21st, 2020, state prosecutors filed a petition with the North Carolina Supreme Court asking it to impose a temporary stay on the new trial pending their filing 
of a notice of appeal. Expected this in the next couple of months. So it will be interesting to see what happens with all of this. We have the Winston-Salem Journal saying it could take more than a year before the North Carolina Supreme Court rules on whether or not a new trial will occur. Mm -hmm. If a new trial does happen, it will be very interesting to see whether the outcome is different. I personally, you keep asking me of my opinion. I wasn't trying to put you off, Captain, but... Yeah, it's my birthday. Answer my damn question. Right, right. Well, here we go. I, I personally think that the that the outcome won't be different. I think that a new trial will be a waste of time. I do disagree with the court. I do think that there was jury misconduct. But again, I don't know how much that will change the verdict. Mm-hmm. If we want it to be nice and clean and tidy, then we should have a new trial. But again, I don't know that the verdict will come out any differently. I actually believe, I truly feel like murder in the second degree for both Tom and Molly is not only the most appropriate charge, but very likely the correct charge. To me, I feel like the blood evidence found in the master bedroom on the walls, on the baseboards, on both sides of the door, on the door jam, on the rock, and on the bat, and as seen in the crime scene photos, paints an almost perfect picture to me. The problem with this case, and we see this in a lot of other cases too, and I don't I don't understand why this this happens. Again, it not only the the swing, the broad swing in the truth between what was actually going on in the house before the death. Was Jason abusive? Was he verbally abusive? How much how terrible was this living situation? Or was Jason miserable and wanted to leave and take his kids and Molly was this horrible person. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a big swing. I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. I think that, that he probably was somewhat abusive. I think it could be, you know, verbally and possibly physically as well. I also think that Molly could have been a miserable person to live with. I also think that Jason could be in the process of leaving her. Oh, I mean there's some speculation that his first wife's death was because of his abuse. That seems like hogwash to me. Well, no, because if somebody that has asthmatic symptoms, if you were choked, uh, and and Molly is claiming that she was choked multiple times, and he would choke her and shake her, uh, that's very it, that could cause an asthmatic a- attack. Yeah, I to me, I that's reminiscent of the Michael Peterson situation, and I don't see. Mm-hmm. The same situation here. I think it's it's coincidental. One, the a big difference between the two is his first wife is dead and now he is dead. Where Michael Peterson, both of his wives died under the same mysterious circumstances. Right. So, I, I mean, that's interesting to ponder. And anybody that that believes that that's a possibility, I'm not not coming after that. I I just really don't want to touch it because I don't think that there's enough to suggest that that could be the case. The the thing that I have a problem with is that there's such a big difference between the two narratives of what was actually going on in the family, in the family dynamic. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. And then I have to take that a step further and wonder if that's the same thing with Jason's death. Was this not 100% premeditated, planned out, cold-blooded murder in the way that we often think of it? Right. 
And was this not 100% self-defense or the defense of another, but somewhere in that horrible, violent gray area between is the truth sitting in there. And that's why I think the second degree murder charges are the most appropriate. I don't see evidence that you can clearly sell to a jury that this was 100% premeditated. I also question things that we see at the crime scene and the blood spatter evidence and things within that bedroom that make me not fully believe the self-defense angle of it either. Mm -hmm. What say you, Mr. Captain? Well, I think uh, I'm going to use a quote from uh, the famous, uh, one of the greatest men in history, Forrest Gump and say that maybe both is happening at the same time that I believe so much of uh, what Tom is saying, what Molly's dad is saying about self-defense. And I, also, again, I think some of his, they're vague answers, but I hit him until I didn't think he would hurt me or my daughter. Well, that's not giving us an exact number, so I don't think that goes against the medical examiners where I have a problem with this is Molly. Molly initially yep. says that I did hit him with this concrete block. We know that this block is covered in blood. We know this block was used as a weapon from everybody from Molly initially from Tom, from the medical examiners to the investigators where I question is like you said, with the door shut does she start by hitting him? Does he get in her face and she goes, that's it. And she uses it then. Or right. is it, the, or is there a possibility and what her, almost her original statements were, was kind of once the fight was done that she hit him with the brick because she was afraid that he was going to come back too. So, I believe that Tom thought everything that they were doing was justified and that he was acting in self-defense because I don't think Tom believes that he would kill a man if it wasn't in self-defense. I just think there was probably some actions either beforehand or after or maybe even during that Molly is not being truthful about. And so I... I think it can be both at the same time. But then then you almost have to give them separate trials. So to me, yes, it's second-degree murder when it comes to Molly. I believe it's self-defense when it comes to Tom. That's interesting. That's very interesting because that's one, one thought that, that I was thinking along the way too. Is there a chance that this is premeditated on Molly's behalf, but by the time Tom is witnessing the scene that she is in fact being choked, but maybe she's being choked by Jason defending himself. Right. Because he gets whacked in the head with a right with a brick. And now he's so angry or so and been hit that he's does say, I'm going to kill her. And Tom sees the hands on the throat and goes after him. And so could you have a situation here where she planned this thing out? manipulated this thing because I I have a very hard time believing look I understand you're going to paint this 
this garden brick, this paver brick, and you brought it into the house for that purpose. Mm-hmm. Keeping it on your nightstand does not seem like a logical place to put it. That doesn't prove, again, just like everything else I've pointed out in these right. episodes, does not prove anything, but it is suspicious. So do you have a situation where she's she has already administered an attack on Jason? Tom hears this attack, and by the time he sees the scene, Jason's hands are on her throat. He goes after Jason with the bat. Well, and, a lot, and again, investigators say that she hit him when he was laying down. I just don't see the evidence, but again, we don't have every angle and every picture that they have. They're, they didn't release them all. If there is a blood-soaked pillow that they claim that there is, well, then then he probably was hit in the head while he was laying right. down. And that's a bit of a mystery to us because out of all the photos we've seen, and there's a there's a, a plethora of them. <laughs> um, we did not see. I did not see the mm. p- the pillow. Would you say there was a plethora? That's right. Uh, I will. I will post as many. They are graphic, but I'll post those on our Instagram at True Crime Garage. They're graphic, but they're important. And here's the other thing, Captain, that I that I really wonder about. And when we try to decipher, we're we're really dissecting Molly's statements and Tom's statements and trying to figure out which ones are truthful and which ones are fabricated. To me, I think the most truthful statement that came out of either of them came from Tom. When he tells the 911 operator, I may have killed him. Right. The reason why I feel like that one is the most truthful statement from either of them. I wonder if that's exactly how Tom feels. Does he not know for certain if he killed Jason or if Molly did? All right. I want to thank everybody for joining us here in the garage Do we have any recommended reading this week? Yes, we do, Captain. This week we are recommending The Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Upending Who We Are. This is by Libby Copeland. This is fascinating. It's a fascinating read. It's something that we all should take a look at. We have so many cases that are being solved these days by DNA testing. Just a little knowledge here for you. You don't have to write that title down right now. You can go to our website, truecrimegarage.com, And we will have The Lost Family there for you, as well as plenty of other recommendations. When you're at the website, sign up on the mailing list because, as the people know, on the mailing list, they just save 20% in the store just for being a part of the True Crime Garage Army. And until next week. Be good, be kind, and don't litter.
They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.